to the book of John, chapter 1. We've been here most of the weekend. Uh, this morning we looked at Amos just for fun. I wanted to pick something that was going to be uh, nice and appropriate. I'll try to do that for the audiences. I thought it was extremely appropriate. She could have been there. But we've been in the book of John uh, for some time, and we've, 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 I've studied elsewhere, of course, but uh, we've been, I've been concentrating for the longest time in the Gospel according to John. It's a fabulous book. Uh, I really like it. Uh, I like it extremely well. Took a, took a, co- a class on it in college, and it didn't make any sense, so I thought, hey, well, I might as well study this book and uh, see if it can make sense to me in my everyday life. And so I really began to study this, and it's been kind of growing in me. Well, the Gospel according to John is very different than the other Gospels. We have four. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the Gospel according to John, is, it begins even different than the other three Gospels. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke begin at chapter 1, verse 1, with their story. Uh, they're off. Uh, Matthew begins with a genealogy, and of course tracing the, the, uh, uh, the roots of, of Jesus back to David, uh, which says he has the right to sit on the throne of Israel, and he's talking about this kingly Messiah that has come, and he begins his story that way. He begins. He's off with that. Luke and Mark, well, they have their own story, and they're going on. But see, John, I like him because he, he's helpful to me, because he doesn't begin his story at chapter 1, verse 1. He includes here at the very beginning, and it's my, I got the NIV for any of you junior hires who will be reading the King James Version. Um, I have the NIV. But uh, the first 18 verses there is kind of like what they're called a prologue, and it's like an introduction to his book, and it kind of helps uh, get you focused in the right direction. Uh, this is extremely helpful. John does this in several of his books. He's written five in our New Testament, and the book of 1 John and Revelation also have prologues to them. In fact, in 1 John and the book of Revelation, it just says prologue right there before, the, before you enter the book. And, and in Revelation, he gives you this prologue which will focus you in on what he's saying because we get, I get so, especially me, I get so carried away with the text and I get going in the opposite direction. And For instance, in the book of Revelation, we come into that book and oftentimes it's you know to find out who the Antichrist is or when is Jesus coming back or something. And that seems to be the last things on his mind. He's not concerned with that kind of stuff. He's concerned about him. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. He's doing the same sort of thing here in this book. And so he's giving us a focusing statement here in these first 18 verses to help us with what he's going to talk about in the rest of his gospel. I thought that's kind of neat. It begins in verse 19 with his story or his narrative. And the story or the beginning of his story here, starting in verse 19, what he does in this first chapter, even a little bit into chapter 2, it's this introduction of these two groups of people. And it's really interesting because these two groups of people keep emerging throughout the text. You have one group, which is mentioned in verse 19 all the way through, all the way through verse uh, 28, and it's the group of the Jews. Uh, they're the religious leaders. They're the Pharisees, the Sadducees, these groups, these leading, the leading groups, the leading religious authority uh, of the Israelite people, of the, of the Jews. And then you have this picture in verses 29 through 34 of Jesus himself. And we looked at that this weekend. It was wonderful. And then in verses 35 to the end of that first chapter, he introduces the second group to us, which is disciples. Now, this is phenomenal. And I've really struggled with this. I've had the opportunity, and I've talked to your teens about it, so I'll talk to you about it. But um, I've really struggled with, I guess, having a, a defining statement of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, that seems so simple, but you see that changes. Um, oh, my, it changes. I mean, you go to a teenager... And hey, what does it mean to be a Christian? And what I hear uh, is this, this list beginning to form. Hey, how's your spiritual walk going? Went to church last Sunday. 
Hey, how, how you been doing in your walk with Jesus? Haven't had sex before marriage. Hey, don't listen to any satanic music. No rated R movies. <laughs> Went to celebrate life. Get <laughs> their list. We see you move into the next generation and say, hey, how's your walk with Jesus going? Oh, I don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls who do. And of course, uh, <laughs> I, wear, uh, I wear suits on Sunday. And uh, well, I read the... Uh, but see, you go into a, another denomination and it changes. I preach a lot. Sometimes I've been having the opportunity to go to the Baptist church and the Pentecostals. And so, hey, I just stick with the word, man. And, and see, there's these, but there's these. I had a chance to go to Africa. That was bizarre. We think we have a problem with, you know, lip rings and earrings. <laughs> they have bones. <laughs> and, but... Um, I went over there in the area that I was working in. I went with a guy named Stephen Manley. And some of you probably know him. We worked together from time to time overseas. And so I was doing a lot of the youth stuff and he was doing a lot of the adult stuff. And so I go over there and on Sundays we split up and I was in the raw bush area. We were working in Kenya, in Uganda, Kenya. Uh, I mean, uh, just raw bush. Had no running water. No electricity, obviously. Uh, The water they drank, they boiled from the river. It was just really raw conditions. Um, But Sunday I got to go to their church. Lo and behold, they had their list. They did. Baffled me. Their clothing. I dressed like a preacher. I showed up Sunday morning. (laughs) They showed up wearing beads. (laughs) Every one of them from here up, just beads. (laughs) Very different. (laughs) I I said, hi, uh, good morning. Nice to have you here this morning. Come on in. Have a seat. (laughs) Open your Bibles up to John chapter 1. Very different. Come back from Africa, my wife says, How was your trip? Well, <laughs> I don't know. It's very different over in Africa. What's, what's, what do you, how do you talk about that? How do you talk about, hey, what does it mean to follow? Really, what, when it comes down to it, what's the, deci- what's the defining factor? What's the defining factor that says, Hey, I'm a son of God, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of, of the Messiah. The only true God, Jesus Christ. What's the deciding factor? Well, I've been coming back to this book. I've been coming back right here. I've been coming back to the eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ and their message. And John's wonderful in this because in these 35 through 39, this section called the disciples, he seems to be, he picks and chooses. He's not writing, a, he's not writing an autobiography, or not obviously, he's not writing a, a history or a biography of the life of Jesus, but he, he picks and chooses five disciples and kind of lays here in the text uh, some what seems like principles, some foundations of what it means to be a Christian. So I've been looking at those with your teenagers. And I'd like to look at one more of them with you this evening. Or this morning. Wish I could be here this evening. Look at one of them uh, with you this morning. And it's found in verse 43. Runs all the way down through verse 46. And I want to read this to you this morning. And this is how it reads. John chapter 1 verse 43. The next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. And of course, Philip responds, Come and see. It's a powerful passage. Again, talking about the disciples, looming in the background where we just have discussed is the Jews. And we'll be talking about them briefly this morning as well. 
But you come into this passage, and uh, verse 43, you see some, and I'm sure that we're all fluent with the Greek here, but there's some interesting constructions here. I really like word studies. I really like word studies because we seem to, I've found, lose some of the meaning. Words become so similar. They become so familiar. Uh, not similar. They become so familiar in our everyday talk, kind of lose the profoundness of them. For instance, one of the words that, uh, that have become kind of familiar to me, and I've, it's just, it slides off my tongue without me even understanding it, is the word forsaken. Uh, forsaken. It's in Revelation chapter 2 of the church of Ephesus. You have forsaken your first love. And I didn't understand what that meant. But when you look in the original language, the literal translation of that word is the word sent off. You have sent off your first love. You just, we, send off, we send off our trash weekly. It's useless. Don't want it around. Stinks up the place. You have forsaken. Puts some weight on that word, doesn't it? Well, there's a lot of words like that in our New Testament that we kind of fly right by. And teenagers, man, this happens all the time to us. We say something, you know, I've seen this. Teens come down to the altar and pray, and you have somebody gets behind them and say, Oh, God, sanctify them holy and justify them through your grace that they might live. And, and the teens are going, wow, What in the world is he talking about? And then they want to give a testimony. I was justified by grace and sanctified through the work of the Holy Spirit wrought in me by the Son of God. And they're thinking, I have no idea what that means, but I feel good. <laughs> And so we kind of lose the impact of those words. So I've been coming back and doing a lot of word studies and finding out what's going on underneath these words and the concepts that are presented to us. So it's really interesting because in this sentence right here, the next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. The next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Uh, it makes it sound like you've got this scene set up here. And it's really neat because it makes it sound like, hey, he's just called, or Andrew and John have been following, and he's just called Simon Peter as a disciple, the rock. And of course they wake up the next day and Jesus kind of yawns, rolls out of bed, walks over by the fire, possibly warms his head and says, well, and the disciples are looking at him. Hey, we're following. They're excited. It's a new experience. Where are we going today? Well, let's go to Galilee. That's what he's thinking. Hey, it's close to here and we can cruise by. A lot of fishermen there might get a bite to eat. Just decided to go to Galilee. Now that's how it sounds, doesn't it? But you see, it's much more profound than that. For instance, the words that we use here doesn't seem to paint a correct picture. For instance, that word decided uh, is much more. That's the verb. That's much more than just deciding. I mean, he did decide, but there's purpose to this word. For instance, this same word is translated differently, and I don't know why they do this, but it's translated differently in John chapter 7, verse 1. And I can read that to you. You don't have to flip through there. But here's the word. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee purposely staying away from Judea. That's the word. Purposely. He just didn't decide to stay away from Judea. He purposely decided. There's purpose in it. It was not casual. It was just not, well, I probably won't go around there. No, no, no. I, I'm purposely not going there. Why? Because they're trying to kill him there. There's all these problems there. There's these things going on there. And so it's a purpose statement. It's a deciding, for, hey, I have chosen to do this. Jesus wakes up in the morning and he says, hey, I am purposely going to Galilee. He rolls out of bed in the morning. He might still yawn. He might go over and get his hands warm by the fire. But he looks at his disciples and says, hey, we're going to Galilee. We are purposely, that's, can't talk me out of this one. That's where he's going, Galilee. But you see, the author isn't satisfied with that. He adds what we call in the Greek an infinitive. Whew. Could have the altar call right now, couldn't we? 
he adds an infinitive. Now, what an infinitive is, is it's kind of like an adjective or an adverb, and it gives content to the main verb. They're not, very, they're not really used that uh, a lot in the New Testament. They're not used a lot in the New Testament, but their significance far outweighs their number. And so when they use an infinitive, our Greek teachers at all of that Nazarene University said, hey, when you see an infinitive, open your eyes. The author's trying to say something to you. It's like a highlight. It's like a yellow highlighter. They didn't have those. They had infinitives. So it's like a yellow highlighter here. And so he's highlighting something. And so this is, the infinitive here is to leave. So he decided to leave for Galilee. It was not, not an accident. There was purpose in it. He was one-track-minded. And this is what the, the author's making a big deal about why Jesus is going to Galilee. Now, uh, the first sentence says then, the next day Jesus purposely decided to leave for Galilee. Then he chooses this word, finding Philip. You find out the reason why he went to Galilee. For instance, this word is used, he's used this word uh, two other times, so it's used three times in this passage. This word is used first back when Andrew went to find his brother Simon. In fact, in verse 40 it says, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who had heard what John had said and would follow Jesus. Verse 41. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon. Andrew's had this amazing uh, encounter with the Messiah, with the Son of God, with Jesus. He's had this amazing... And the first thing he does is to find his brother Simon. He's got this one-track mind. Hey, if there's anybody who can get through my brother... Of course, we know how Simon was. Teens, you definitely know how Simon was. We looked at it this weekend. I mean, the guy was not interested. He was out there on the fringes. He was in all kinds of trouble. Kind of a loser. Kind of flaky. I mean, he just wasn't in. And so the first thing he does is, if anybody can get through to my brother, it's got to be the Messiah. Hey, John didn't reach him. I didn't reach him. My parents. No, if anybody can get him, it's got to be the Messiah. So the first thing he does is to find his brother, Simon. This is that word. Jesus wakes up. He purposely goes to Galilee. Why? To find Philip. Not by accident. It's this one-track mind. It's used again a couple verses down in verse uh, 45. Or actually in verse 44, I think. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the Messiah. He finds Nathanael and says, he has found Nathanael. There was reason. He was searching him out. Now, We've gone to all this trouble, kind of establish the mood of what's going on here. Jesus has he's woken up. He woke up in the morning. He probably stretched, probably yawned, walked over, warmed his hands up. He's got one thing on his mind. He's been dreaming about this one. I really want, him, I really want you to make this jump with me. He's been dreaming about this one. And what is it about? Oh, it's about finding Philip. He's, he's got him on his mind. You cannot talk him out of this. If everything else fails today, if your truck breaks down, the wiring goes bad, if the fifth wheel breaks, I mean, if everything else goes wrong, hey, I'm finding one deal here. I'm, I'm finding Philip. And he wakes up and he comes to Galilee in search for one person, and it's Philip. Most remarkable the way the author paints that. Then immediately, you look at Philip's response. Verse 44. Philip, once now he's found, because Jesus has said, come follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the Law and the Prophets. Jesus of Nazareth probably comes up to 
yeah, we found him. Been looking for him. And of course, I'm looking at, I'm looking at Philip going, no, you didn't. Hello. He found you. You didn't find him. But then you know what happened? This begins to sink in my own head. And I'm so much like Philip. I don't realize that he's the one who found me. He's the one who finds us. He's the one who finds us, who's after us. And in fact, my language is, yeah, I got saved back in 1995. Finally got my act together. And I hear this from us. Hey, have you seen Steve? Wow. He's doing better. What? He's shaped up. Come on, we talk like this, don't we? He's shaped, he's doing better. He got his act together. Yeah, I got saved. Really? How'd you do that? Well, I stopped and I started. I come to church now and I don't. And Philip takes ownership. Now, this baffles me. Because uh, the disciples are consistently doing things like this, but there's this mood in, in Philip that he has no concept of what Jesus has dis- just done. He has no idea that Jesus has been after him. Do you know that this morning? I go to camps, and I see teenagers sitting in front of me, and I'm so excited, because he's out to get you. <laughs> he's tracking you down. You're not going to escape this one. He's after you. Isn't that good news? He found me. I was a loser living in California. And he pops on my radio through some preacher out there, some evangelist, talking about some corny story. And he got me. And I had no concept of that. And so people say, when did you get saved? He found me in 1995. Grabbed a hold of me. Jerked a knot in my tail. That's Jesus. He got me in 1995. And I finally stopped resisting him. That's the deal. Doesn't just stop though when you're saved. Did you know he's after you this morning? Oh, he's after you. He's out to get you. This is that Jesus. And he approaches Philip and says, Come follow me. And Philip goes to his friends and says, Yep, found the Messiah. Been looking for him for quite some time now, studying, doing a lot of research. Bumped into Andrew. So, hey, you want to come follow? I'll introduce you to him. I found him, you know. And this is the air. And what I see at work in him, strangely enough, is what I see at work often in the Jews. Now, I don't know if you understand the profoundness of that statement, but you have two groups that are presented. You have two groups that are presented in the book of John. The first group, and I want to look with you briefly at them, are the Jews. And they are self-centered to the core. Self-reliant. Their knowledge comes from their self-understanding. They pat themselves on the back. They're all about, they love uh, praise from men. Selfish, self-people. You see this in John chapter 1, verse 19 through 28. And I'll give you a quick summary of this real here, real quick here. But look at this. In verse 19... It says, now this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. Now this is phenomenal to me. We read that statement and there's something hidden there. 
Now, this was John's testimony, John the Baptist. He's been, out, he's been out baptizing, powerful speaker. Thousands of Jews are coming out to hear him. Everyone knows about John. They, some of them think that he may be the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, the sole hope of Israel. I mean, the whole society in which in this time has been wrought with Jewish crucifixions. The Romans have been pounding. There's been the zealot party that's foreign and been uprising, and they're trying, they hate the Romans, and they're longing for this coming Messiah to come and deliver them. This is what's going on. And John the Baptist comes preaching, and thousands of Jews are coming together, and they're thinking, could this be the Messiah? Verse 19. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. Could he be the Messiah? This is phenomenal. The leaders of Israel are thinking that John is the long-awaited hope, slow hope of Israel. And they're so excited that he might be the Messiah that you know what they do? They send someone else out to find out if it's him. You didn't get that one? The Messiah's come. Our deliverer. Well, go out and see if it's him and come back and tell me. It's all strange. And you have this whole idea. Bring him here. We'll, we'll prove of it. See if he fits our... A lot of information there. But you go on in this conversation. In verse 20 it says, He did not fail to confess, but confess freely. Hey, I'm not the Christ. Then in the next question, they nail it on the head and they say, Then they asked him, Are you Elijah? Verse 21. <laughs> and he says the most amazing thing. No. And you're like, Liar? Fibber? He is to Elijah. Jesus himself said, hey, that's the one to come. And yet they come out and ask him, say, hey, are, are you Elijah? And he goes, no. <laughs> Fibber, you are too. Shame, shame. You're lying. He's Elijah. He's the Elijah to come. And they ask him, are you Elijah? And he says, no. They ask him, are you the prophet? He says, no. Finally, in verse 22, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And in verse 23, the most amazing thing happens. John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. And he gives this calling of Elijah. So he indeed says, hey, I am Elijah. But I'm not the type of Elijah you think I am. Because they come out and they're going, are you Elijah? And he goes, man, no. Are you the prophet? The big, you know who we are, right? No. Finally, some say, hey, who are you? And he says, oh, I am Elijah. I'm not the type of Elijah that you think I am. Isn't it amazing that they come up and ask Jesus, are you the Messiah? And he goes, I'm not the type of Messiah that you think I am. And they had this whole air of self. And they had never expected an Elijah to come like John the Baptist. And it goes on in verse 24. They didn't catch that. And the Pharisees is what 24 is about. Now some Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ or nor Elijah nor the prophet? In other words, hey, what authority? They're questioning. They didn't get his authority. You know, or he didn't get their authority to be doing what he was doing. And John looks at them in verse 26, probably reaches down, picks up some water, lets it run through his hand. And he says, listen, I baptize with water. Come on. Totally downplays his ministry, which they have, no con- they have no idea. They're expecting him to go, yes, I'm Elijah. And he says, man, I baptize with water. Then he says this, among 
you, there is one whom you do not know. Then he says, who's, uh, who's, well, I'll read it to you. I can't remember his name. He's the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. And it blows, and it's an absolute difference to who the Jews are. Now, of course, there's other designations of them, and I just listed a few of them. In chapter 8, uh, in chapter 8, you see this story, uh, and of course it's a woman caught in adultery. And the Jews, this is the, the group here, and there's more than this, I just picked a couple. Um, and I know you want to deeply explore all this, but we can only look at a few chapters, a few verses. But in chapter 8, uh, there's this scene here. These Jews are trying to trick Jesus, which is incredible. And they find this woman caught in adultery, this woman who's been abused, this woman who's been used, this woman who's been hurt, who has no rights, has, no, has nothing. She's, I mean, hurting. And these Jews grab her, race her in the midst where Jesus is at, and throws her, the language here is very violent, throws her right at his feet. Throws her right in the midst of what's going on. And their sole reason for bringing her there was not that she might become right or be saved. Not that she might change. They didn't care about her at all. They brought her there to prove their own point. We know that. Yourself, man. And they throw her down. And yet, how does Jesus respond? Anyone here without sin cast the first stone, picks down, starts drawing in the sand. Their self. And you see again something working in them. And this is all over the place, but I only picked one more. And it's a couple chapters over in uh, chapter 11. And uh, what, what's going on here is it's the baptism of, or not the baptism, it's the raising of Lazarus. To Lazarus to de- Lazarus to uh, life, he raised him from the dead there. And uh, around verse 45, what happens is, is you've had some Jews who've been there and they see this great, great miracle. And of course, some believe, but some, it says, runs back to the Jews. Now listen to how they respond. Listen to how they respond to this. Verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in Him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. That's their little board meeting. What are we accomplishing? They asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take both our place and our nation away. Hear their focus? Everyone's going to follow him. And they're going to come and take our... Then the chief priest, who's the head of all of this group, verse 49 says, Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up and said, You know nothing at all. Jeremiah translation. You don't know how to serve yourself at all. Set back. Watch this one. You know nothing at all. Verse 50. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that of the whole nation perish and everybody come and take away our houses and lazy boy recliners. Isn't that amazing? Do you see so clear their focus? This is the group we're dealing with here, the Jews. And I followed through them through the, I followed them through the Gospels and how dirty and how they are and selfish and self-centered and, and they're all about self. And I thought, praise God for them disciples. And then I come into this passage right here And you know what I see working in them? The same thing I seen working in the Pharisees. I thought, I must be reading something wrong here. 
So I begin to survey a little bit of the disciples. A couple quick passages. We just looked at one of them, which is chapter 1, verses 46 and 47 in that area. But in chapter 4, you see the same thing at work. You see that the disciples were a tad bit prejudiced. A lot of prejudice in that day and time. One of them is with the Samaritans. Chapter 4, you get this Samaritan woman. And of course, go over to verse 27 of chapter 4. You get this Samaritan woman. Of course, the Jesus is coming through that area and His disciples tell Him, hey, wait at this well. You don't want to go in this bad area. Just wait right here. We're going to get you some food. We'll take care of this kind of people. Hey, you wait here. You don't even want to associate with these. And they go in town. Meanwhile, this woman comes out. Not only Samaritan, uh, she's the whole, you find out the whole conversation that she's a prostitute. She's an outcast among her people. She's not wanted. I mean, she's just not worth anything. And yet Jesus extends to her the right hand of friendship and offers her himself, which is salvation. And it says in 27, Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. No one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then she ran and left town. Of course, she ran back into town. Saw 12 thugs coming. And verse 31, it says, Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. Jeremiah translation. Rabbi, eat something. Hurry, for she comes back. And in verse 32, But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And you begin to see something here. Now check this out. You begin to see something here. The disciples, they're clueless of his message. And they're always, they're not understanding him at all. And his brothers are always urging him, hey, to go in. And if you want to be a political figure, you've got to make yourself known. And his disciples never understood this because you walk through from chapter 4 all the way up to chapter 7 and you see that he's not hanging out with the, the plush of society, the well-dressed and the... He's hanging out with tax collectors and harlots and lepers. Hmm. You know, what's he doing? And they never, never, ever understood what he's talking about. And he'll say a parable and they'll... I loved how the guy put it, even in your own congregation, he was telling me about... Actually, not, he was a pastor from the area here. He came up to me after one of the services this weekend and he said, I love Mark. He said, I once heard... And I forget the guy from... I forget everything. I forget the guy from Nazarene Theological Seminary did a study on Mark. He said, the first eight chapters of Mark... And I think there's 16 chapters in Mark. Is that correct? I forget. <laughs> I forget everything except John. But... There's eight first eight chapters in Mark is all about Jesus explaining who he is. And the last eight chapters of Mark, all about them trying to figure out who in the world they're following. Because they have no concept. They had their own framework of what a Messiah was supposed to look like. They had no concept of a bleeding, suffering, dying Messiah King. And so all the things that Jesus was doing, they would stand back and go, go on to the next little section here. And in verse 11, which is, I find it kind of humorous. Uh, of course, I find the word hysterical sometimes. But you come into chapter 11, and you see that, of course, obviously, the Jews are not receiving his message. We understand that pr- prior to this, we just looked at the Pharisees and the Jews, that they're trying to kill him. Well, you come into chapter 11, uh, and uh, you see that Jesus is uh, going to go uh, to uh, Judah, of course, uh, he's going to go around that area or go up to, by Jerusalem where Lazarus was because, you know, sisters come and say, hey, he's dead. And the disciples, now here, this is a hysterical conversation because the disciples are trying to discourage him. Why? Well, man could get killed going around there. You know what I'm saying? Kind of want to hide a little bit. And they come up to, to Jesus and um, 
uh, in verse 4, you see uh, this sickness will not end in death. In chapter 11, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified. And of course, uh, he says in verse 7, let us go to Judah. Now hear this. In verse 8, they say, uh, but Rabbi, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you. And yet you're going back there? <laughs> Hello? You're going to kill us. You're going to kill us. You don't want to go there. And Jesus says in verse 9, are not, are not 12 hours in a day? A man who walks by night will not stumble for he sees uh, by this world's light. Okay, verse 10. It is when he walks by the uh, night that he stumbles for he has no light. Uh, and he says, our friend in verse 11, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. And so he talks, hey man, there's 12 hours in a day. We've got ministry. I think my father's moving and I'm following Hey, our friend Lazarus, Lazarus has fallen asleep. I'm going to wake him up. Listen to the disciples' response in verse 12. His disciples replied, Lord, if he's asleep, he'll get better. Hey, I mean, hey, throw, throw cloth on his face. He'll be all right. Not to go there. Come on. He's sleeping. Give him some night well. They don't, they don't want to go. If he's sleeping, hey, he'll be all right. He'll turn out just fine. And they're trying to ditch. And Jesus keeps these, no, he's, he's, no, this is where we're going. And so finally, you come down to verse 16. Then Thomas said, to the rest of the disciples, let us go that we may die with him. Come on, let's go. We'll just get killed. Forget it, let's go. We're coming. That's their focus. <laughs> I find that a little funnier than you do, of course. But you see, that's hysterical because they're concerned about one thing. They're always arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is like, what are you talking about? He's washing feet. And Peter's saying, I'm washing my feet. They don't get it. Go on a couple more. You love that one. You'll love this one. Come into chapter 12 and he seems to, this is right after this scene, John seems to just lay it out for us. Many of the disciples kind of lets their true identity kind of, uh, kind of uh, come out all the way up through chapter 13. Of course, you have Jesus anointed at Bethany and Judas lets his whole identity out. He's a thief. He doesn't care about the plan. It's all about the money. And of course, there's... Uh, there is a secret disciples of the Pharisees, uh, namely Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. But of course, they're afraid. In chapter 12, verse 42, it says, Yet at the same time, many, uh, many even among the leaders believed in Him, but, were, but because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear. They would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved praise from men more than praise from God. And you begin to see some of the, even the identity of the people, they have this, this same thing is somehow, same thing that's going on in the, somehow it's going on in the disciples. And of course you move on and you come into chapter 14 and Jesus sits down and begins to talk and there's this couple, two, three chapters here in a row, uh, this, this intimate dialogue with his disciples. He's telling them about, hey, what's going to happen? And in verse, in chapter 14, Philip looks at Jesus and says, hey man, listen, we're confused. Just show us the Father and that'll be good enough for us. And Jesus looks at him and says, what are you talking about, Philip? You've been with me such a long time and yet you don't know me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And it's evident they have no clue. Now this Philip, here, this right here, is the same one that says, we found the one that uh, Moses wrote about in the law and the prophets also wrote. Yeah, found him. And yet, what, a few verses, a couple chapters later, down chapter 14, he's scratching his head going, I have no clue what you're talking about, man. I have no idea. I won't go through the rest of them. But there's Thomas who doesn't believe and 
Peter who really flakes out at the end there. This threw me for a loop. Got my hope set on these disciples. Kind of confused about Jesus anyway. He comes as the Messiah to pick 12 guys to carry on after Him. He doesn't go to the seminaries. Doesn't even pick Nazarenes. Amazing. (laughs) Who does He pick? Picks tax collectors and... That's a no-brainer. Everyone knew he was a loser. He still picked. He made him the head of his disciples on this rock. <laughs> Even all the disciples laughed at that one. And you look at these two groups, and they're both clueless. They don't understand a thing he's talking about. And yet, this is the one of the, found, the one of the foundations of what it means to be a disciple. What's the defining factor between the Jews and a disciple? Jesus. Could it be, could it be that you're sitting here saved this morning not because of a spectacular church tithing record, not because of a fabulous Sunday school class you teach, uh, not because of a church record that you never miss. Hey, you've been here at a fever of 107. And you're still here. Practically dead. They just keep setting you up. You're here. <laughs> Wouldn't it be something if that being a Christian, being a, called a child of God, the defining factor that separates me from the pagan out there is Him Amen. and Him alone. That has nothing to do with my good preaching. You know what I hear? Oh, Jeremiah, I love that sermon. Wow. It's not me. I mean, I don't want to tell you that. Hey, great. I'm glad. Call me back. I'd love to come. But it's this book. It's him. (laughs) It's him. It's all about him. It's all him. What's the defining factor? It's him. No, I can't. I don't want to get sidetracked here, but how do we bring this into our. And I don't preach doctrine. I preach the word and doctrine falls out. First time I went to a, get my district license, they told me, are you going to preach entire sanctification? And I was like, uh, sure, yes, just give me my district license. <laughs> I don't know what to say. What am I going to say? No. <laughs> no, I'm not doing it. That's it. No, I said, yeah, of course. Yeah, well, sure. I've kind of struggled with that. I wonder if there are people who were entirely sanctified before John Wesley. What do you think? Don't say no. Of course there were. Why? Because that's a Bible thing. It's not a John Wesley thing. Nazarenes don't have ownership on that deal. It's His Word. And so do you think that if I just preach the Word, people would end up... Come on, shake your head, yes. I think so. I really, really think so. So entire sanctification, if we want to look at that from a Bible perspective... It's not a, got entirely sanctified, hadn't sinned in 25 years. Well, what is sin? That doesn't make any sense. Because that makes it sound like, hey, you're doing something, you're doing something, the status that you're living in, that keeps you from sinning. No! No! No, no, no. Why I'm not a sinner is because of Jesus Christ and Him and Him alone. It has nothing to do with what I do. He doesn't come and fix me up. He doesn't come and, and, and pull some greasy, gluey glob out of me called sin and then I don't sin anymore. No. You see, without Jesus, I walked from this end of the sanctuary to that and it was called sin. 
But yet somehow I walk from this end of the sanctuary to that right now. And Jesus, it's the same walking. And it's not called sin. And why is that? Because He's walking in me. And He's changed me from the inside. And I want to live. But I want to live in Him. Paul struggles with this. He says, hey man, what I want to do, I cannot do. What I don't want to do, I'm trapped. Who's going to save me from this body of death? Praise be to Jesus Christ our Lord. Then he goes in about life through the Spirit. Man, I want to ask you this morning. And I'm not talking about, you know, the bump in your head twice on this altar. You know, save, sanctify. Hey, I'm done. I'm not talking about that kind of stuff. I'm talking about where is he not in your life? Where have you left him out? We're really good about bringing him in when our truck breaks down or bringing him in when our family's falling apart. Where's he not in your life? You see, this, this kills me because I've got this crazy notion that anything that I do that's outside of him is not, something's not right about it. That's something that's sin in my mind is, is not things that I do. It's a relationship of who I am and how he's living inside of me. Let me ask you something. Is in your job? Why do you do the things you do? Is he in your tithe? I'm not talking about list stuff. Talk about relational stuff. Amen. You got these two groups of people in our day and time. Now, I'm not talking about the Jews. I'm talking about us. You guys have been thinking all along. Who's he talking about? I'm talking about me. Because I'm an evangelist, and I stop and get gas at truck stops, and I look at them and go, "Ooh, shame, shame on you." And yet there's one difference between me and them, and it's Him. I've got a sovereign God that I've stopped resisting, and He's inside of me, and He's doing something, and He's changing, and He's molding. He's creating in me something that I never was. Isn't that powerful? Makes you want to jump up and run to the altar and say, do that in me, doesn't it? Where is He not in your life? We love you this morning, Lord Jesus. I want you in my life. In the name of Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, Messiah, King, God, I want you in my life. I don't want, to, I don't want you out of one thing that I do. In the name of Jesus, I want you in the midst of my bacon, making breakfast with my wife. I want to be a mirror of you to my world in the midst of the gas stations of my life. I want you to somehow come in the midst of all my dirtiness and uncleanness. I want you to identify with me like you identified with your son in his day. I want you to come down and I want you to define yourself inside of me. And I want people to look at me and say, well, he's kind of flaky, kind of annoying and weird, but man, he's got Jesus. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I want to ask you something, teenager. And I want you to think about this. When you're walking down the halls of your high school, who do the people there see? Some pious religious teen who doesn't have sex before marriage or listen to certain kind of music or drinks or something. Do they see a teen that has Jesus in them? They see a teen that's madly in love with Jesus Christ. 
And that's the defining factor. Is he, when they mention your name, is his name so closely to follow that whew, it's almost one and the same? I've got this crazy, crazy thought that maybe witnessing happens in the midst of that. Man, wouldn't it be something if witnessing was just getting out there in the midst of my world and loving Jesus right in front of everybody? And out of that, witness happens. Out of that, ministry happens. Whew, wouldn't that be something? If we could just boot all the evangelistic programs and say, let's get out there and love Jesus. Wouldn't that be phenomenal? I want to ask you, is that your life this morning? I want to ask you, is that your life this morning? Is He your life? Are you remaining in Him and He in you? Is He the vine and you the branch? I'm talking about tithe. I'm sick of that stuff. I'm not talking about church attendance. I'm not talking about what we do and don't do. I really want to give you a chance to respond this morning. And I think we're going to be led in worship. So I like to stand in worship. So I'm going to ask you to stand. And as God speaks this morning, no pressure on this, but don't miss out on this. And you're coming to an altar. It's not a list thing. It's I'm coming to Him and I'm responding to Him. If He speaks to you this morning, oh, would you respond in the name of Jesus? Would you respond? Drag Him right in the middle of the mess of your life. Focus in on Him right smack dab in the midst of what's going on. I trust you're going to respond. Lord Jesus, we love You this morning and I am profoundly in debt to You. I'm learning more and more that the defining factor in Jeremiah Bullock's life is not his preaching It's not His good works. It's not what He does. 